Hey there. How, how you doing, Darren? Reading yourself there, Steve. Great. I'm doing great. Cool room you got there. <laughs> there there may or may not be a headshot of you behind there, but the key <laughs> It's okay. Thank you for doing this. My uh, pleasure. We will hold this until January as requested, but I have dug into your new album. When did you actually finish it? Just last week. Really? Yeah. I, I It was kind of a, a very concerted effort. And as you know, with any project, it has a tendency to run up to the deadline and cross the finish line by hairs. So I, uh, I can't, I, it's so, it's so interesting to me how, when I look back, I've made that deadline without compromising anything mm -hmm. or every time, but that deadline was met like within an hour. And we're talking about a year of work. And that's what happened this time. It was the funniest thing, oddest thing. You know, I, the mastering lab needed the final master at, you know, noon and it was 10 30 11 o'clock and i'm putting the finishing touches on the last mix you know and i sent it in and i got the first ref back and i had changes to make and finally when i got the third ref which was probably three or four days um it was approved and it was sent out to you guys and you got it right away so yeah <laughs> we got that we got some notes about the album which i want to delve into one thing I don't know about you, now you're very intricate in terms of your performance, your composition, the thought that goes behind the guitars, etc. But I don't know about your demoing process. Do you mm. do fully produced demos before you start tracking an album? No. Um, what I do is find snippets. Now, there's various processes that go into finding the inspiration for a song. But what I do occasionally is uh, I'll find a snippet of something that I recorded that has some kind of energy in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Like you pick up the guitar, you start noodling, and occasionally it's like, whoa, what's that? Okay, that's good. And I capture it like on my iPhone. And it's really, it's like an electric guitar just not plugged in on an iPhone. Mm -hmm. That's my demo. And it might consist of 10 seconds of a riff but the the dna for the entire song is in it so then i start fleshing it out and it it could it could be conceived sort of as a a, a demo approach but it's it's the take you know what i mean i don't do take after take after take after take you know i uh once i get a mental picture mm -hmm. of what the song needs to be there's no demoing Hmm. Do you hear the drums in your head when you're writing? I hear uh, sometimes very specific, mm -hmm. yes. But at the offset of listening for a drum beat, a lot of times that happens even before the song is written because the, 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 the way... The, uh, for me, sometimes if there's a foundation of mm -hmm. a groove that inspires you to play something on it that works, you know? So um, with, with drums, it's based on the song. Sometimes I, I'm neurotically forensic, you know, like, I don't know. Take something like the song Kill the Guy with the Ball, which is on one of my records called Alien Love Secrets. Every single kick, every snare, every hi-hat, everything 
was heard by me, you know. But then there's times where I just uh, I just tell the drummer, okay, here here's the tempo. What do you got? You know. So it's it. There's no real one way. Sometimes it's a clear picture. Sometimes it's like a a just a sort of a dimensional understanding. Okay, it needs to kind of be like this. Hmm. So like so. So yeah. To recap, you kind of demo more in your head than actually tracking. And the drumming is, while it's important to the song, it's one of the later things to come a lot of the time, per se. But have you ever written on piano? Or does everything get written on the guitar or your head? Any means necessary. Okay. You know, it's it, there's no uh, exclusion of potential. <laughs> and uh, for me, I think music comes to me not unlike it comes to other musicians mm -hmm. uh, there's various methods some of them are intellectual where you're thinking academics music theory and you know i got i know that this is going to work because the book says so you know whatever <laughs> and that's fine you can get a you know, get a lot done that way uh in a compositional setting uh, when you're composing there's there's no um collaborating you know, this is this is your vision, and you just have to know the language to get your point across. Wow, that that all blows me away about you because your Berkeley roots, taking that into mind, just about everyone I know who can compose and speak about music theory, they learned it all from the piano, not the guitar. Do I have it correct that it all comes from the guitar from you? That you were able to pick up music theory based on the guitar? No, not at all. Oh, okay. uh, it comes from it. It comes from what it is, music theory. Mm -hmm. It's translated through every instrument, you know. So uh, the way that various songwriters and composers get that out of themselves can be through a particular instrument. Mm -hmm. For me, music theory stands apart from a specific instrument because it applies to all. So when I compose, there's, there's times where I visualize something. I go, oh, okay, and then I got to figure out how to get it down. There's times where I hear something from another artist that just lights me up. I'm like, oh, that is that energy, that groove, that atmosphere that they created, that they captured. I'm inspired, but I want to do something like that. When I say that in my head and it comes out, it, it's very different than what they did, but the inspiration is is there from the energy. So it didn't require an instrument. Mm -hmm. It required being inspired. Um, and then there's times where <clears throat> I obviously pick up the guitar and every you know a song is written based on what I can do on that. Mm -hmm. But when I compose, uh, if I'm composing a, a, a huge orchestra score, it, it, it all I need on a piano occasionally is like to hear a chord. You know, I got, okay, because the chord has within it the, the, the atmosphere of the, the whole tonal structure. Mm -hmm. So the, how you dish that out is up to you as a composer, but, the, but when you play a B flat major seven, six, nine, sharp 11 chord, and you go, oh, okay, that, 
it's not a it doesn't become a b flat minor a b flat major six nine sharp eleven chord anymore it becomes oh that right so once it becomes that in your imagination that's of prime importance because everything comes everything you do after that comes from this atmosphere that you um, embraced so whatever language you use as a musician to get it out that's what that's your tools that's at your disposal hmm. right and and then the 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 theory itself it, it, it may be in the background but it's not the primary force the primary force is the atmosphere of the chord because with that chord i can write an entire symphony you know what i mean and you'd never you'd never know it so One of the things that I like to do when I'm looking for a creative idea mm -hmm. on the guitar or compositionally or whatever is I, uh, this happens at night a lot when I go to bed. It's really quite an amazing thing to do and anybody can do it. You, you clear, your, you have to clear your mind. You have to relax it. You have to be still, which means the little voice that's always talking you, you just have to shut it up for a minute, you know, to, even a moment. And, and you just become aware and you put all your attention in your ability to listen inside of yourself. Okay. Now, for a lot of people, they hear a phrase like that and they're like, okay, there goes by again. What is he talking about? Mumbo jumbo. I'm, I'm still with you. Yeah, but there are many people that understand what that means to listen inside yourself. So when you're doing that, you don't try to create something. You allow it. You allow your natural musical um, inner voice to just arise. To just it it will speak for you. You don't have to, you know, and and you 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 act sort of as if you're sitting in the audience watching a show and you don't have any idea what's going to happen next. And the great thing about doing this is. Your ability to imagine is, is actually infinite. Hmm. The only thing that blocks you is your belief in practicality. Your belief that, yeah, but I can't even imagine that because I can't do it. Who can do it? You know, how am I going to do that? Well, this is the thing that blocks a lot of the ability to hear these melodies or the, the music that's inside of you. So I'll just, I'll just lay there and I'll just shut up, you know and just listen really intensely and then there's no there's no limit on instrumentation you know unless i decide that there is but i don't so everything everything is every sound that i've imagined or haven't even imagined is available because i don't put any limitations and then the the the, the it's it's not like sounds arise mm -hmm. they're recog it, it's recognized they're recognized they're imagined they're there and then that can really be inspiring because there's no rules there's no like okay this is the a section and okay let me see this is the b section okay well no i should go to the c section here because that's what songs usually do and if i don't do that then it's not going to be a real song this all all of this is that's the talk in the head but if you want to know who you really are musically, you have to enter that dimension. And then yeah. you have to have the courage 
to bring it out into the world with no excuses. So that takes balls. It, it sounds like there's no such thing as writer's block for Steve Vai because you can actually have the guitar in your hand and try to write, or you could actually just shut yourself up, listen, and then find the song that way, that there's multiple ways to find that inspiration. Yes, and, and Steve Vai has struggled at times uh, through his life discovering that because Steve Vai battles his ego too. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, yeah. the ego says, when I, th this is when I have writer's block, I have to do something that everybody is going to love. Mm -hmm. I have to do something that fits in so well that everybody knows how great I am and it's a hit and I make a lot of money, by the way. So that's what I need to do. What am I going to do? How can I have anything but writer's block, you know? Because yeah. peop the people who are actually making music that that does fit that criteria are doing things that are natural to them. It just so happens that their world of creation is based more in music that's more accessible. Yeah, well, that's an interesting thing about your career where you have done some amazingly accessible radio-ready stuff You've done stuff that's totally original, avant-garde, and then you've done stuff that's also in the middle of the two. So in a good way, we never know what we're going to get when we get an album from you. So, so keep us guessing. Like Avalanche, am I saying that correct from the new album? Avalanche, yeah. Totally put vocals on that. That could be on a Dragon Force album. Right. You totally hear that in, in Rock Band in a great way. So did you know that a song like that, for example, has commercial potential or you just write it and don't even think about that? No, that, that part of my brain lives in a fantasy because I think all my stuff is radio friendly. <laughs> Not really, but uh, I've dabbled with chasing radio and realized that for an artist like myself, it's futile. Not that... I, my, you know, I, I, anything I do wouldn't be played on the radio, but radio is a, is a slippery slope. Sure. Because good music to the people who believe it's good gets on the radio, you know, otherwise if it's crappy music and it was bought into position, right. It doesn't have any legs and it, it just becomes like beach shit you know and but but people know an inspired song you know you feel it it can be very simple but everybody's stimulated differently so luckily there's there's people who are making music that stimulate those people and every great artist expresses their true their true creative desires most effectively when they follow those things that are most exciting to them on a creative level. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, so I, there, I see. Yeah. yeah, there's no way out of this that you will only ever be satisfied. You will only ever feel fulfillment when you do that. You may think, no. If I write a song like Elton John or whatever, you know, and I get a big hit and all of that success comes to me, 
then I'll be fulfilled. Uh, no, you're going to kind of go, well, I got to top that over and over and over again in the yeah. endless treadmill of success yeah. and what we don't have. But another thing besides your new music that intrigues is you're a Long Islander by nature. I am. Uh, Carl Place is where Carl your Place. build is being from. Nowadays, when you grow up on Long Island, when you hear Carl Place, you think of uh, Sam Ash and you think of Roosevelt Field Mall. When you yes. were there, there wasn't much there, correct? It was kind of like a pass through town. Yeah, well, it was uh, a lot more rural because the city has a tendency to move out onto Long Island. But when I was growing up, man, it was just the greatest place to grow up. It it was quieter, a little a little more sleepy. We had Roosevelt Field, and it was a fifteen minute walk from my house, and we went all the time. And it had, um, um, and, and that was the biggest mall in the country at that time. Really? So, so, so I was told. Yeah. <laughs> and uh the, as far as the sam ash and and that stuff that didn't come along uh for me until um what, when did sam ash open in hempstead maybe it was because it was in hempstead and i didn't go as often but at roseville field was matthew's music and that's where i got all my goodies you know that's where i would buy my strings and i got my first guitar and that kind of thing you made it out of Long Island around 78, something like that? Yeah, when I graduated, I, I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Got it, makes sense. Did you growing up um, ever see a band called, I wrote it down, uh, sorry, did I not write that down? City Function, Funk, F-U-N-K. You know what, I hadn't, I, I don't believe so. I mean, when I was young, uh, teenager, on Long Island doing the bar circuit. It was bands like Twisted Sister. We'd go see them all the time. And Rat Race Choir, the Good Rats. Do you remember the Good Rats? Oh yeah, Pepe Marcello was that the singer. What an incredible band, yeah. you know? And uh, my claim to fame at the time was that I had purchased from somebody one of those little red, uh, one of those little orange MXR phase 90s. Yeah. From a guy who had stole it from the guitarist and the good rats. So as bad as I felt that it was stolen from him, I, I would just sit and look at it. This it's really his. I still have it. It's in my closet right over right in back of me. <laughs> was that guitarist Bruce Kulick? No, no, that was uh this was way before that that was uh what's his name? John Gatto. John Gatto. Got it. Wow. Okay, so you remember all your Long Island stuff. You didn't just bury it in a closet and go, I moved Oh, no, I am so grateful that I grew up on Long Island. I had, in my town, just on my street, when I was a kid, there was an incredibly rich music culture just because of a couple of kids. One of them in particular, a friend of mine, John Sergio, was a little older than me and I'm I'm like 10 11 9 you know whatever whatever all the way through uh, he was always musical he always was into good music and he just had great taste and I would go and you know listen to the music that my sister was listening to which was like all like Led Zeppelin and Alice Cooper and Aerosmith you know and I was kind of um, limited because I didn't, uh, that's all I knew and that's all I wanted to know, you know. But then I remember after I had discovered that music, I, I went to John's 
And I go in his room and he's got all these posters of like uh, Jethro Tull, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Yes, Queen. And he turned me on to all this music, you know, and it was it was like a blossoming, you know. And then and he played guitar. And when he started playing, like I couldn't believe that he could actually play some notes. And that's when I said to him, you must be the best guitarist in town. And he said, well, if you think I'm good, you should see my teacher, Joe Satriani. And that's uh, he gave me Joe's number. And that's how I started. Joe Satriani, the guitarist of City Function. <laughs> that, that's yeah, right. where I was going with that one. Yeah, he was when he was 16. He was in a, a funk band where uh, he had his afro. Oh, is that Joe's? Was that Joe's band? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Now I okay. Now I get it. Yeah, that was funny. The, that there's a couple of photos floating around. And then something I didn't know about you until I read Brad Talinsky's book that came out about Eddie Van Halen is that basically you were the credit for 5150 happening through a chain of events. Have you ever heard that or? Well, no. you you inviting Eddie Van Halen to Frank's Zappa's studio is what no. provided the inspiration of, oh, uh, I should have one of these. Ah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, if you saw Frank's studio, you'd anybody would want one. <laughs> I absolutely believe that. Do you have do you have time for one or two DLR questions and then I'll let you roam free? Yeah. What time is it? It 12. is 3.21 p.m. Eastern. Okay, so yeah, I got um, my next interview is twelve thirty. So you got we got nine minutes. <laughs> okay, the first question that I have is: you brought Chris Frazier into the DLR sessions early on, and he wound up parting ways. Uh, you were still cool with him, however, because you use him on future projects. Am I correct about that? Well, yeah. What happened was um, Billy had brought me in. And this was after they, from what I understand, you know, Billy would be a good person to ask. Uh, I think they had tried out like where they were working with or touching uh, like three other guitar players. I know I Steve Stevens was the first or second. I had heard that. and uh, But when I got, you know, when I came in, we, we kind of all gelled. Uh, and at the time, there was no drummer. So I brought Chris in. Now, to... to help us you know now chris chris is a great drummer i've used him on many records and yeah uh, but for the kind of thing you know there was there was many drummers that tried out eventually that were great drummers but it it, it just takes a certain kind of uh sound and and just rock and roll sensibility for something like that and uh you know dave needed to feel comfortable and Chris was great you know it doesn't diminish him as an artist at all still working it, regularly today and he's in foreigner so things were foreigner for many years you know and uh, so but Dave wanted us to try out some other drummers and we um, Billy and I held auditions and it was like oh, there's so many I, I don't know how many <laughs> so many drummers but when when Greg Bissonette entered the room there was no there was no question anymore you know there was just an instant recognition of, okay, the, he's the right guy. Got it. And then with keyboards, something that is confusing about Edom and Smile. I've interviewed Jesse Harms before. I know he played on a couple of tracks. Jeff Bova played on a couple of tracks. And then eventually Brett wound up in the band first as like half on the stage, like half the show, half not on the stage. 
was originally Brett's gig, but he wasn't available. Do you know who was the original keyboard player? No, there was the, when you referring to the Edom and Smile. Yeah, in the very beginning, you know, we had written the music and recorded it, and mm -hmm. the keyboards were something that were very gently massaged into the a, right. a couple of songs. And I'm not really sure, you know, who was doing what, because it wasn't something I was focusing on at the time. The the producer and the, you know, uh, engineer said, okay, we got this guy here. Let's put a little keyboards on, you know, so that, so studio recording, Brett wasn't even a twinkle in the eye yet. You know, we didn't know anything about Brett. He, he wasn't there beforehand because there's a difference between well, there could be a difference between a studio musician and a touring musician. You know, studio right. musicians have different brain muscles. You know, they right. like to stay at home. They don't want to leave town. They like they're getting paid exorbitant amounts of money uh, to when they're when they're for, you know first tier players. And Greg was number one, if not one or two, studio drummer in Los Angeles. You know, him and Vinny and. Um, and, and I think it was Greg's roommate, Mark. Um, sorry, I can't remember his last name. So when you when you hire a musician to go on tour, it's a whole the, even the personality has has to. They have to be a good hang. I think you're saying they have to be a good hang. They got to be a happy camper. You know, they got to enjoy being away from home, or or at least be able to tolerate it. They you know they can't be sad sack worry ward. <laughs> miserable son of a bitches you know because that that fucks up everything you know um right. so uh and i'm not saying that all studio musicians are miserable you know it's not on tour it's not that case at all but brett came along and he was absolutely ideal at the right time which was after the record was made and everything we needed a, a touring guy so i think i just think uh, I, I can't speak for dave you know but no, no I, can. <laughs> yeah, right. Nobody can. <laughs> I believe that, you know, coming from Van Halen and then, the, you know, the power rock kind of foundation that bands had at the time, keyboards were not really something that was associated with Van Halen very much, you know, until, you know, the, the jump and all that stuff. And it still was Edward playing. Yeah. So to have background keyboards on the stage at first was um i think the idea was a little precarious you know so it started out as you mentioned i don't really even recall a lot of this because it wasn't it just wasn't important <laughs> to me but i think that you know brett started out sort of off stage sort of like hey i think there's a i think there's a keyboard player they're either playing the tracks or there's a keyboard player yes <laughs> yeah and then eventually you know he became an integral part because he was writing music and when skyscraper came along you know brett was uh, i think he contributed like three so three or so songs to the record Eight so songs. He, yeah he became a uh, more of an entity in the band so they brought him out and then the last thing before i let you go so Risa Salvaje, were you there for the sessions of that, or is it just Billy and Dave in the studio to finish that one? No, I didn't go to the studio. That Dave did that, knocked that off in like a day or two. Wow. You know, they just he just took the they took the masters and just overdubbed Dave singing in Spanish on them. 
Now I know. Well, thank you for the many years of great music. There isn't a day that goes by where I don't make my wife do the Yankee Rose guitar intro. So, <laughs> Tell her I said I'm sorry. <laughs> so thank you, Steve. Uh, and Thank you, Darren. Looking forward to the touring. Take care. You got it, brother. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Okay.